Hear the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. Glory to you, O Lord. There were some present who told Jesus about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and I still find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the Gospel of the Lord. May I speak in the name of God the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please take a seat. If there is a loving God, why does he allow bad things to happen? Surely at some time in our lives we've all been posed this question. Or maybe someone questioned our faith by asking this, the hardest of all questions, to answer objectively. Maybe a personal loss an unimaginable tragedy or even a global catastrophe. Something made us question why. We live in volatile times. We pray for peace in Ukraine, in the Yemen, in Syria, in Africa, across the whole world. And we pray for the end to the numerous humanitarian disasters, so numerous that we forget them. Why does God allow this to happen? Well, probably the most common explanation to this question is the free will argument. The view that God gives us free will to choose our path and the decisions that we make. Therefore, the causality of everything lies with humanity, with us, and not with God. But it's still hard not to look to God, to shout out in our pain that it's unfair, it's unjust, particularly when the grief impacts on us personally or on those whom we love. So you might think that if anyone could answer this question, it would be Jesus. And yet, when challenged, he avoided answering it. In today's reading, as Jesus is addressing the crowd, 
Some of them push him for an answer to a highly sensitive and very dangerous political situation that was causing anger and unrest in the community. Only Luke mentions this incident and the background is not explained. But it's evident from the anger that what he refers to is an incident in which Pontius Pilate had had a number of Galileans executed whilst they were performing a ritual sacrificial practice. And even worse, he'd shown no hesitation at transgressing the boundaries of desecration by having the blood of the victims mingled with their sacrifice. Now this wasn't meant as a trick question to catch out Jesus, but it raises several issues which we need to consider. Jesus was himself a Galilean, and maybe even had a personal connection with the victims who would have been from his neighbourhood, maybe people he knew or even grew up with. Pilate, on the other hand, represented the Roman Empire and epitomised the bloody and fear-induced brutality of an occupying army, one prepared to violate sacred practice, to subjugate and prove how strong it was over its provincial subjects. Feelings were running very high in the crowd at this desecration and this disregard not only for life but also for their religious rituals. But when Jesus answers, he doesn't talk about Pilate. He doesn't talk about the political situation. And he does not take the opportunity to defend God against charges of indifference or inactivity whilst his people suffer. Instead, he turns to repentance, asking the crowd whether they considered those who'd been slaughtered to have been bigger sinners than themselves. Now to us that might seem like a very strange response. But there is a logic. And Jesus' challenge refers to a particular passage in Deuteronomy 28.20, which says, The Lord will send upon you disaster, panic and frustration in everything you attempt to do, until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. Now this passage from the law of Moses had created the idea that divine retribution was the cause of punishments, particularly catastrophes, and inflicted upon perpetrators of sin. And they were therefore a just, proportionate response to the crime. We read in Matthew 9.1 that even Jesus' disciples were of this view. When they came across a blind man, they asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his family, that he was born blind? So Jesus' challenge about the victims being worse than sinners was in fact a rhetorical question and one which he quickly answered himself saying that it was not divine retribution. No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. 
And whilst the crowd were trying to take this in, Jesus talks to another disaster where 18 people had been killed when a tower collapsed on them. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? And again, Jesus emphatically says no, implying that those murdered by Pilate and the deaths of the 18 did not indicate any degree of moral iniquity on behalf of or by the victims. Once again, he reiterates, unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. So Jesus was overlooking the cause, but stressing how precarious human existence is. Life's fragility gives it an urgency. In both examples, the dead were victims of a surprising and unforeseen disaster. But Jesus doesn't attempt to answer the question why and urges instead that we should, mis- we should not mistake good fortune at having survived the hazards of life as evidence of God's blessing. Instead, he uses these unpredictable, unchangeable incidents to urge the crowd to change their mindsets, to repent, to affect the things that they can control, i.e. their hearts and their minds. So is Jesus exploiting these tragedies to score some theological points? Well, certainly he capitalises on the suddenness of death and the unpredictability of life. But then it's important to recognise that he never, never promises that by repenting we can have freedom from disasters or that we can avert calamity or pain. Repentance can mean many things. It's not simply moral uprightness or expression of regret or even a complete turnaround of character. In Luke, repentance does have an element of morality, but it's not solely about re-engineering our lives or our ethics. Matt Skinner, in a commentary on Luke, describes it more about being found than finding oneself, which he relates to a new awareness of one's own shortcomings and one's circumstances and the need for repentance. Tragedy and hardship tend to nudge our attention back to God. But in these verses, Jesus warns that tragedy and death come so suddenly that they dangerously limit any opportunity we may have to live our lives more inclined towards God. The key point is the urgency of Jesus' call. Using these two examples of violent death, Jesus challenges us, demanding to know how we will live the life we are given to live in the time we're given to live it. Now looked at this way, Jesus' words are frightening. Yet they also depict human life as a gift, albeit a frail and fragile one. We're all vulnerable 
and the ability to keep ourselves safe from the unpredictable events is not always within our own gift. Every time we have cause to mourn or lament, we're forced to recognise our own mortality. And yet, our instinct for self-preservation allows us to observe tragedies, particularly those not directly impacting ourselves, at a distance. And protecting ourselves with rationalisations and false assurances of our own longevity. Jesus urges us against delay or complacency. As a friend once said to me, if grace isn't possible where you are, then it's probably useful to move to a place where grace is possible. And in our first reading from Isaiah today, we're offered exactly the same advice. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their way and the, up, and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord that he may have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. As in Isaiah, Jesus used the word, the Jewish, the Hebrew word, shuv. And the core meaning of that word is to return, or to go back, or even to come home. And here, here is Jesus inviting us, no, imploring us, because there's a real urgency in these words, to return to God. Amen.